Well, good morning. We're going to let the kids go ahead and go downstairs um, and go to, I can't pronounce that, is it S-M-Y-M, S-M-Y-M, there we go. Well, good morning. My name is Eric Newcomb, and my beautiful wife, JJ, here, and my three kids. Um, we've lived in Beijing for 13 years. I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. in the United States. I grew up on the Maryland side, and one of my favorite memories of growing up was playing on the high school football team. So I actually brought a picture. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, that guy hasn't changed a bit. Thanks. I know. Um, So anyway, this is a picture of me when I was 15 years old. Uh, I was excited to play football. I, I was a sophomore in high school, and in the middle of the season, I got pulled up from the JV team to the varsity team, uh, which were only a few other sophomores were able to, to do that, and so I was just ready and excited to be there. And unfortunately, uh, we played uh, one of the first games I played in was against a team called Wild Lake. And so if you followed high school football in Maryland in the late 80s, early 90s, which I'm sure most of you did, um, you would know that Wild Lake was the team to beat. And unfortunately, I did not play for Wild Lake. I played for Wild Lake's rival team, Centennial High School, the Eagles, go Eagles. And I was really excited to play. I I loved to hit people. That was my favorite thing to do, was to hit them as hard as I could. Uh, But Wild Lake was a big team, and we were... We had lost the previous year to Wild Lake by seven touchdowns. But our coaches told us that this year was going to be different. And they were really passionate about that. And you know what? We believed them. We were naive enough to believe that this year really was going to be different. And so we believed them. That is, of course, until the game began. And we quickly learned that we were very outmatched. You see, Wild Lake had a running back named Raphael Wall. He was, he was big, he was fast, and nobody on our team could tackle him, which is actually a really good thing if you're a running back. But it's not a good thing if you're on my team. And so early in the second quarter, we were already losing by three touchdowns, and my coach decided, hey, let's put Nukem in. Let's see if he can tackle that guy. And so sure enough, I'm excited, I'm ready to go, and I go running onto the field, and I think the opposing coaches saw me, and, and, and they thought, hey, let's run it at the new guy. So there I am, playing outside linebacker, ready, waiting for Raphael Wall to come my direction. And sure enough, the very first play is a pitch to Raphael Wall, and he's coming my way. And I was excited. I was ready. All this energy in me, and I was determined that I was going to tackle Raphael Wall. So here he is. He's running my direction, and as he's coming my way, I'm coming out towards the sideline to get him. And then when I get really close to him, I launch my body at him. I hit him with my shoulder. I wrap my arms around him. It was a beautiful textbook tackle. I even lifted him up off the ground and threw him back down onto the ground. And I had tackled Raphael Wall. I was so excited that I tackled Raphael Wall that I got up and I was about to do an I'm so awesome dance, only to realize out of the corner of my eye that Raphael Wall was already doing an I'm so awesome dance. And that's when I realized I had tackled Raphael Wall in the end zone. So he scored a touchdown. 
And it wasn't that I didn't tackle him well. I actually tackled him really well. But my problem was, is I didn't know where I was at. I didn't realize where I was at on the field. And that impacted uh, how I did as a, as a football player. And, you know, sometimes I feel like in my Christian life, I, don't, I struggle to know where I'm at in relationship to God. What about you? Do you know where you're at in relationship with the Lord? You know, this summer I went home. It had been three years, I think, since we had been to the States. And one of the things that I, I quickly realized was my kids hate driving in the car. Anything, any trip over 30 minutes, you can guess what they're going to say. Are we there yet? I mean, I remember one time we're on a, on a highway and there's nothing in anywhere nearby. And, and one of my kids says, are we there yet? And I'm thinking, does this look like where we need to go? But the hard thing for me to realize was these are the same kids that can fly on a 14-hour flight from Beijing to Washington, D.C., and they don't complain one bit. They're perfectly happy being on the flight. And that's what I realized is it's because the airplane has these TVs. And so not only is it a TV, but it... It tells you where you're at. And I think that's very important. So we know where we're at on the flight, and it helps us understand, okay, I've got 14 hours left. What do I need to do? And so it's important for us to know where we're at. You know, when I was in the Boy Scouts growing up, I took a wilderness survival training merit badge. And we had one of the things we had to do was orienteering, which is looking at a map and figuring out important things. And... They said the most important thing is figuring out where you are on that map. And I think that's important for us in our relationship with the Lord, too. You know, when you go to a mall, and they have those big maps, whenever we go to a mall in China, the first thing we do is we look for the map. The most important thing on the map is not the location of Starbucks or the location of Blue Frog. The most important thing on a map is that little sticker that says, you are here. So it's important for us to know where we are in relationship with the Lord. This morning, I want to look at a couple examples in the Bible of people who had clearly no concept of where they were in relationship to God. But unfortunately, it's really easy for me to relate to them. So as I share about people in the Bible and their struggles, I'm also sharing about my own struggles. So let's go ahead and look at some of that. The first is the Pharisee in Luke 18, 10 to 14. So if you have a Bible... You can go ahead and read along. I'll go ahead and just read it up here. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here's a man, he, he fasts, he tithes, he's morally right, he's doing the right things. But yet his heart is far from God. You know, in my house... I do a lot of dishes. I like to have a clean kitchen. So I jump in to make it happen. I know many of you are probably thinking, man, I wish he was my husband. <laughs> but 
but I do. I do a lot of dishes. I like to have a clean house. But I think the one person here that would want me to clean less is actually my wife, JJ. And I think perhaps this is what happens when you marry a psychology major. But what JJ tells me is she feels like I escaped to the kitchen as a way to not emotionally engage her and the kids. Can you, can you believe that? I'm thinking she's got a clean kitchen. She should be happy with that. But, but you know what? Don't hate her. She's right. I denied it for years that I do that. But as the Lord has worked in my life, I've begun to own it. Because, you know, the kitchen, the kitchen doesn't, the kitchen's quiet. The kitchen's not whining at me. The kitchen can be cleaned and be done with. Whereas JJ and the kids are ongoing, in a good way and in a bad way. They're an ongoing relationship and there's very little closure. But the kitchen, I, I can clean it, check the box, and walk out of there feeling like it's done. And so, but, but, but what I've realized in this is JJ doesn't want a clean kitchen. Don't get me wrong, JJ likes to have a clean kitchen, but she would rather have my heart. And what I do is I run to the dishes to think, well, okay, I don't know how to emotionally engage JJ, but if I'm cleaning, then she can't be mad at me. So I'm just going to go ahead and clean and clean and clean. That way JJ has no right to be, be upset with me. But what she would rather have is my heart. Just like the Pharisees, they tried to please God. God wants our obedience, but God would rather have our heart. So where is your heart right now? You know, the Pharisees, they do the right things, but Jesus speaks more harshly to them than any other people group in the Bible. Here's some things that Jesus addressed the Pharisees like. He, he said, you hypocrites, you blind people, you whitewashed tombs, you fools, lawless, of their father, the devil, liars, blind guides. So why did Jesus feel so strongly to these people? I mean, I wouldn't want to be called that. Let's go ahead and look at one of the, one of the verses, Matthew 23, 25 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but inward are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to those others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Those are really strong words. It actually appears in what they call the seven woes, when Jesus just kind of goes off. And you know, I remember growing up in, in Sunday school, the Jesus I knew, he's a nice guy. Jesus loves the little children. He's, he's happy. But here he's very angry. And, he, and he's very angry at what the Pharisees do. So why does he speak so harshly? Why does he have this verbal beatdown? I think it's because Jesus just doesn't want our obedience he wants our heart. He wants us to call us into something further. And that's heart transformation. And that comes when we're honest with the Lord and honest with ourselves. God wants our hearts. In Isaiah, it says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. 
The Pharisee, he honored the Lord with his tithing. He honored the Lord with his fasting. But his heart was far from the Lord. You know, I know it's easy for me to focus on the things that I should do, on my actions. I try to abide in the Lord in my own strength. I try to earn God's favor, just like I try to earn JJ's favor, uh, by my actions. But all that's doing is keeping the outside of the cup clean, while the inside of the cup is molding, because my heart is far from the Lord. And, you know, I, then I deceive myself into thinking that these actions make me closer to the Lord. It's the appearance of godliness, but it's not abiding in Christ. 1 Samuel 16 says it this way, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. My wife uses an example uh, at times of, you have unexpected guests drop by, and what are you going to do? You have a cake that's, that's five or six days old, and it's kind of starting to mold. And you could take frosting and start frosting the cake, and it would look perfect, and you could serve it to them, and they'd be like, oh, wow, what a beautiful cake. But you would never serve your guests a molded cake, because as they would open it, uh, cut into it, they would see what's inside. Often it's easy for me to clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is far from God. So another example in Scripture of someone having no clue where they were in relationship to God was Peter. You know, I always felt sorry for Peter because Peter's mistakes were so public. I remember hearing once that there's three things that are eternal, God, his word, and the souls of man. And so here, Peter's mistakes, his sin, and his issues are recorded for all eternity. Talk talk about pressure. So let's go ahead and look at some of his story. Matthew 26, 30 to 35 says... And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. You know, it seems to me that Peter had engaged the Lord with his head. He knew what he wanted to do, but his heart was far from God. So then when he was actually tested by the fire, he denied God. You know, this discussion between Peter and Jesus and the disciples happened after the Last Supper. They're all leaving in the Last Supper and going up the mountain to the Garden of Gethsemane right before Jesus was going to be crucified. And they were talking and walking, and that's when you look at John 14, 15, and 16 as Jesus is is walking their way up there. And you know, one of the most comforting things about this passage is what happens when they arrive at the garden. So let's go ahead and look. It goes on to say, that Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. Did you catch that? On the way to the garden, Jesus basically tells Peter, Peter, you don't have my back. Peter, you will fail me. Peter, you will fall away from me. As they're walking up the mountain. But then they get to the top of the mountain in the garden. He tells the disciples to wait right here. But then he calls Peter specifically deeper into the garden with him. How amazing is that? How amazing is it that when we fall away from the Lord, 
when we fail the Lord, when we, we try and, whether we love God with our heart or with our head and not our heart, when we try and do our act, with our actions, yet God is still calling us to a deeper relationship with him. Even though when we honor the, li- the Lord with our lips, but our hearts are far from him, he, like Peter, is calling us, or we are, like Peter, being called into a deeper, deeper garden with him. Jesus knows us, and yet he's calling us deeper into that relationship. You know, I love that picture. I can imagine Peter walking into the garden, distraught and heartbroken over what Jesus just said to him. And then Jesus calls him. If I was Peter, I'd be like, me? You want, you want me to go? Didn't you just say, to me, that's, it's an evidence of God's grace. So we all know the story. Jesus is right. Peter does fall away. He does deny him. But let's look at a different garden. This is the garden after Jesus dies and raises from the dead. Mark 16, 5 to 7. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So did you catch that? Go tell the disciples and Peter. He didn't just call the disciples, which included Peter, but he specifically singled Peter out, even after Peter had denied him three times. To me, that's just an amazing grace that God has for us. You know, the Lord personally wants Peter because the Lord wants to know Peter personally. He is calling Peter into a deeper, deeper garden, and he's calling us into a deep, deeper garden. You know, like Peter, it's easy for me to believe with my head, but it's harder to get it down to my heart. I heard a psychiatrist once share that communication over distance is difficult. The greatest distance is the foot and a half to get it from your head to your heart. So I know the right things, and I often even do the right things, but my heart often is far from God. So now what? You might be thinking, okay, thanks, Eric. Uh, you, share, you share about the Pharisees and their struggles and, and how you can relate to that. And I, you know, I can relate to Eric and the Pharisees. Or you share about, about how the Pharisees do it by performing. Or you're thinking, okay, thanks, Eric. You share about Peter and yourself and how you believe God with your heart, your head, but not your heart. So now what? What do we do? Well, the first thing I think is to, pen, is to be honest with God. So there's three things that I want to share this morning that have helped me engage my heart with the Lord. And the first one is to be honest with God. As you look at a map, you need to find exactly where you are. You know, you can pretend on the 14-hour flight from D.C. to, to Beijing that you only have two hours left when actually you have 12, but you're only hurting yourself. So it's important for us to be honest with God and know where we're at. You know, throughout the Psalms, I love how raw and passionate David was and how honest he was in his interactions with the Lord. He cried out to God in sorrow. He expressed his frustration. He expressed his sadness. He shared his pain and disappointment. But, but at the same time, in spite of all of that, David is often referred to as a man after God's own heart. So 
at times I think it seems unspiritual for me to, to be frustrated or disappointed with God. But God's not surprised by that. It's not, he's not offended that I share that. We're just fooling ourselves to pretend when we're not hurt. You know, it's okay to cry out to God like David did. The thing is, is God already knows that. God already knows what's in our heart. 1 John 1, 6-10 says, We say we have fellowship with him. While, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. He wants us to humbly and honestly come to him. You know, another example in Scripture of somebody that honestly comes to Jesus is the man who, whose son is uh, possessed. And I love how Jesus tells him to believe. And the man's response is, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I think that's something I cry out to the Lord a lot as well. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. As we humbly approach the Father, we see more and more of our own depravity, but we also see more and more of who God's glory is. If you go ahead and turn to the next slide for me. Uh, a couple years, about 10 or so years ago, somebody shared this chart with me. It's called the Gospel Grid, and to me it was very impacting. So basically, when we figure, once we come to realize that God is here and he's holy and I'm not, I'm down here, that's when conversion takes place because it's recognizing that I'm not God. But, but as we grow in our relationship with the Lord, there's actually a growing awareness of my own sinfulness, which is the bottom line. And that gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And that comes through the Holy Spirit convicting me of sin. It comes through reading the Bible and figuring out all the sin that I've been doing that I didn't realize. It comes from accountability with friends and fellowship. And so as I grow in my walk with the Lord, that becomes deeper and deeper. But at the same time, as I grow in my walk with the Lord, I, I'm able to see more and more of the greatness of the glory of God. And so that becomes bigger and bigger. Now, unfortunately, you can turn to the next slide. We, we, we try to shrink the, shrink the cross, which is God, God's presence in our lives. And we do that in many ways, but the two main ways here are by performing and pretending. You know, pretending... It's, we're trying, what we're trying to do is get these two lines to go be, be closer and closer and closer, mainly for our own comfort. And what we do is we try and bring that bottom line up, which is the growing awareness of our sinfulness. And we do that by pretending. We do that by denial. You know, I'm not that bad. We do that by comparison. Well, at least I'm not Steve. I hope there's no Steve sitting over here. But at least I'm not Steve. Um, we do that... By excusing it. I'm not really like that. We try and spin it and justify it any way we can in order to get that bottom line to come up. And the other thing we do is by performing, just like the Pharisees did. You know, God's holy standard is here, and I'm here. So what I try and do is I try and, in many ways, earn my salvation back by performing. And that cheapens God's grace. It cheapens his love for us. And so what I need to do is I need to rest in, in knowing that God loves me regardless of the things that I do. He loves me for who I am. And when I do that, when I understand the gap between those two, instead of trying to perform or instead of trying to pretend, 
that's when the cross is at its biggest. That's when Jesus' impact in my life is at its greatest. So the first thing we need to do is we need to be honest with God. As we're honest with God, we also need to remember that he's not done with us yet. And to me, that's, that's comforting. You know, we are a work in progress. We're all on a journey. And, you know, he has no expectation that we even should have arrived yet. In fact, in Philippians 1, 6, it says it is impossible to have arrived already. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. To me, that's comforting because what it's saying is he's accepting me where I'm at. Now, he wants me to move towards him. But that actually won't be to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, I often feel like I need to get my act together first before I can approach God. If I can get all my ducks in a row, then I can go to God, and then God will be pleased with me. But that's not what he wants. He wants us to come as we are, knowing that we are a work in progress. He will continue to work on me, but I can, as it says in Hebrews 4, I can approach his throne of grace with confidence, knowing that I will find his mercy and grace. You know, this verse also gives me confidence because it shows that he's still working in me. And that gives me hope. Because I see sin in my life or I see my heart distant from him. And it gives me hope knowing that, that he's, he's the one in work in my life. And, and I can trust him to work. So we need to be honest with God. We need to know that he's not finished with us. And the third thing is, as I begin to understand where we are on our spiritual map, it's important to know that God does not change. If we're looking at a map and the destination on the map of where we need to go is constantly changing, then we would have no idea how to get to where we need to go. That would be so frustrating, but God doesn't change. You know, Pastor Rick always likes to ask us, are we securing ourselves to something that's not secure? Because only in Christ are we securing ourselves to something that's secure. And for me, that, that, that is a great reminder of knowing that God does not change. He's secure. I can secure myself to that which is secure. James 1.17 says, The Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So the next picture, I believe it's the next slide, is... Oh, no, okay, never mind. Um, I'll tell a story. Uh, there's a story of a, an old couple, and they're in a truck. And the guy is driving, and the wife is sitting as far as she possibly can. She's leaning up against the window on the opposite side of the truck bench. And as they're pulling up to the intersection, they pull up to another truck. And behind them, they or at the intersection is another truck, and it's a young couple. And the guy's driving, and the girl is almost sitting in his lap. She's so close. And the old couple in the truck, the woman says, well, why don't we sit like that anymore? And the man says to her, well, I'm not the one that moved. And I think that's, that's true with God, is he doesn't move. He doesn't change. We have a tendency at times to, to move away from him. But we know and we can rest in the fact that he doesn't move. So if you're here today and you're thinking, I feel like I'm all the way pressed against the window, 
God wants you to come, come closer to him. If you're here thinking, you know, I've never had a relationship with God. I've never asked Jesus into my life. I'm not, I'm not even in this truck that Eric's talking about. But I encourage you to, to, to really think about it and come to him. He wants you to come as you are. If you're here today and you've never made that decision and you'd like to, I would encourage you after the service to come talk to me or to Rick or to some of the elders. We'd love to help you understand that. Because we're all on a journey. I like to come up and share. It seems like I often share about my, my issues. Um, and a lot of that has to do with I feel like I need to perform to make God like me. But what I'm realizing more and more is God likes us for who we are, where we're at, and has nothing to do with, with what I do. There's nothing I can do, actually, that would make God love me more than he already does love me. And on the flip side of that, there's nothing I can do that would make God love me less. And so that's an encouragement to me. I hope it's an encouragement to you. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for just how you've been working in my heart, helping me see that I need to know where I'm at in relation to you whether it's on the football field or the figurative map or in a plane, it's important to know where we are. Lord, help me to know where I'm at with you, not based on my works or based on my head, but based on my heart. Lord, help us to honor you with our lips, but at the same time, help our hearts not to be far from you. Father, I pray that you would just um, live through us this week, help us to abide in you, help us to love you with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. In your name I pray. Amen.